And then I'll be taking the teens back there in the fellowship hall, so, and turning things over to David Bogard back there. But we got two weeks, and I think that there's going to be plenty for those two weeks. We could definitely, as you guys have seen, go way longer, look at a lot more stuff, a lot more detail, a lot more conversation. But for our time together, I think, I think we've had a good time looking at these things together. Um, Danny, would you start us off with prayer this morning, and then we'll keep going. Thank you. So we've looked at quite a few things. And next week we'll do a bit more of a summary and a recap as we close things out while talking about how Christianity is in fact the superior worldview in contrast to every other and any other worldview. Um, If we remember what worldview is about, everyone has a worldview whether they know it or not and can articulate it or not. And a worldview answers the questions of where did all this come from? Who am I in all this? What is, what is wrong with the world? And how can what is wrong with the world be made right? And what happens after this? And so when it comes to those questions, of course, evolution has its own arguments and, and atheism has its own arguments and all the different uh, branches off of atheism have different things that they would argue and contend for. But none of them give the robust answer that Christianity gives to all of these answers with all of the evidence. And that's what we've been looking at in our time together is all the evidence from both science and history and logic and reasoning. We're making that case. And so when we come today, we're coming to uh, what could be seen, and I think it would be right to say as the, the crescendo, the, the big point of Christianity, the big point of our apologetics and Christian evidences, which is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. How do we know that these things were true? Not just all wrapped up in itself together, but each of these three things. How do we know that Jesus really died? How can we be sure? What is the importance of his burial? And what, of course, is the importance of his resurrection? How do we know these things to be true? This is one thing that we talked about last week. There is abundant historical evidence to reasonably conclude that Jesus lived, died by crucifixion, rose from the grave, is the Son of God, and as a result, the Bible then is the Word of God. Now that last part, that's next week along with our worldview uh, sum, uh, sum up. 
about how, of course, then, Scripture, the Bible, the New Testament, and the Old Testament are all the inspired Word of God as a result of what we looked at. And so, last week, we started with the historical side of things, looking at how do we know that Jesus really lived? Because there's a lot of people that argue Jesus was just myth, just legends, just whatever, and that the Bible is not historically reliable. Do you all remember our conversation about that? How if... At worst, then, if the Bible is not the Word of God, at worst, it is a reliable historical document. At worst. At best, it is the Word of God. And so we established the evidence and we looked through the, the other uh, key witnesses and eyewitnesses, which we'll go through again a little bit here in just a second. But here's kind of how the argument kind of goes forward, proving the resurrection. If Jesus is raised from the dead then of course He is the Son of God. And if He is the Son of God, then He has the character of God. And God is truth. Which means if God is truth, then what He says and what Jesus say is truth. And that means then, Jesus said that all of His word is truth that we find. And so when He refers back to key people and key parts in the Old Testament as well, such as Adam and Eve, Noah and the ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah and the great fish, the prophet Elijah, King David, when He refers to all these people and all these events, it validates that they were real historical time, space, people and events. So not only does it validate what takes place in the new, but he validates what takes place in the old as historical and reliable as well. And so then all the word is truth. And all the events that happened, happened. And then the implications of that truth, boy, there is a lot of them. If the truth is that Jesus really is the Son of God, then that means, as John fourteen six would say, that He is the way, that He is the only means for salvation, that as He talked about in Matthew 16, 8, when He said, I will build my church, He did so, that He was the prophet that was to be expected, talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that the Holy Spirit is available because of His work when He said that I go and will send Him in my place, when He said that in John 14, 15, and 16, and then that also means that there is no other means to be saved other than through Jesus. Christianity then would be the only legitimate means of having a relationship with the God who made the universe, who designed it to be suitable for us to live, and have the ability to understand good and bad and our need for a Savior. And so therefore the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation, is the most important part for truth about who He is and the truth of our reality as well. We began with one, this verse right here, one of the many. But Isaiah 1.18 where He says, Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Throughout our study, we've been looking for what is the most logical, what makes sense, what is the most reasonable. Because the pushback from atheism and others is that Christianity, people who, who follow this guy named Jesus, really just have this herd mentality that they just go along with it because everyone's going along with it. And it doesn't really make sense when you think about it. But as we began and started to pull it apart and look at it, it does make sense to believe in Him. It does make sense to see that He was a historical person. And it is going to make sense that He did live, die, was buried, and was resurrected as well. We're going to look in Scripture at the evidence. 
And we have already concluded that we can look in Scripture at the evidence because it is reliable history. That was last week. Now that we have established Scripture is reliable, now that we have established that it is historical, we can use it now to look at the person of Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So, the death of Jesus. One of the most well-established facts of ancient history. And you also, you and I will consider the events, the evidence that are both medical and the circumstances surrounding his death. What do uh, people argue back against this point, right? Before they were arguing, okay, well, Jesus, he wasn't really real. Well, we've established that. So what might somebody push back at this point and say? He's a good man, yeah, and, and he lived, but what? He wasn't really resurrected, right? Well, why not? Why, why else might they say he's not resurrected? He didn't really die. It was just a theory that he died. And so the theory that he died, here's the alternative arguments. One being the swoon theory. He didn't really die. You know, he, yes, he, he was whipped. Yes, he was hung on the cross and he lost so much blood and he was just so weary from all the torment and the agony. And so he swooned on the cross and they thought that he was dead. And so they took him down. And when they took him down, they, of course, took him to the grave. And then in the cool of the grave, because of how cool and right the climate conditions were, he was able to be revived. And so they thought he rose. That's the swoon theory. Anybody see any problems with that yet? Okay, how would you put the big old stone out of the way, right, that was covering it? What else? One more time. Oh, yeah. Let's not forget that giant nine-inch spearhead up under his rib, right? What else? Any other thoughts? We're going to go through them. I just want to hear from you guys. Oh, yeah. The appearances. And not just they saw them, but they handled them and they ate with them, right? Exactly. So, okay. Well, well maybe he died. But... What really happened was they actually stole the body. It was a corpse heist. See, what happened was the disciples, they wanted to, to further the teaching and, and make it really real and, and get all these people to believe what happened. And so they banded together. They came. They moved the stone because a bunch of them could do it, right? They moved the stone and they stole the body and they started teaching. He rose. And you know what? If it wasn't them that did it, well, the Jews did it because they didn't want anybody to have his body. So they just wanted to get rid of him completely. They wanted to not just leave him buried and have a place where people could go worship him. They wanted to destroy it. Well, we're going to see the problems with that, too. And this one's kind of funny, but it is argued. Well, they went to the wrong tomb. Whenever the ladies were there, whenever they went to check on the body later to finish up the, uh, what they were doing with the spices and everything... And whenever John and Peter ran to the tomb, they, they didn't really know where it was, but they, they looked into this empty tomb, and he wasn't there, and so they said, he rose. Okay, well, we're going to argue against that. But then the biggest one, one of them is, they had to have hallucinated then. Maybe he did die. Okay, we know that he was buried. We know where he was buried. But you know what? He didn't really rise. They just thought that they saw him because, you know, 
when, when people go through traumatic events, someone loses a loved one, right? And they love Jesus like a brother, like a father. I mean, even more so if possible. And they loved him dearly. When someone goes through, you know, my grandma, whenever, this is a fake story. My grandma, whenever she lost her husband, uh, she just kind of hallucinated once or twice that he was still there in the chair by, beside her rocking, right? And so she just felt this loss. She was broken mentally. And the apostles and the, and the disciples, they would be broken mentally, right? They would be destroyed and devastated. And so they, they just had to have hallucinated. And that's kind of a hard one to argue against if you think about it. But we're also going to argue against that. First, did he actually swoon? We're going to take these one at a time. Did he actually swoon? Could anyone actually survive a crucifixion? That's the question we have to answer. Is it possible? No, it's very, very, very not likely. And in his situation, definitely impossible. In fact, did anyone in history survive a crucifixion? There's not a single record. And, you know, crucifixion had been around for a couple hundred years before the Romans came along. And the Romans, as you guys may be aware, but maybe have not articulated before, were professional killers. They knew how to kill somebody. They knew how to keep them alive just long enough to torture them for as long as possible. And they knew what a dead body looked like. And so here we have professional killers on the scene that knew what they were doing. Look with me in Luke chapter 22 first. We're going to look at a couple places. I'm going to put these up here. Uh, let me get some readers. I need, uh, I'll go to Luke 22. Um, I'm just going to call out some names. Hope it's okay. Matthew, will you take Matthew? That makes sense. 27, 36 through 31. Um, <clears throat> Rick, will you take John 19, 17? And Danny, will you take John 19, 34? Now we'll do these in order, if that pleases the, the bunch. Luke 22:44. Really, the suffering of Jesus began before he was even arrested. It began here in the garden. It began when he was praying to God there. And he came out and went, and as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Do you think this was an easy or a hard prayer? Do you think he's just talking like I'm talking right now to God? I'm pretty sure he's on his hands and knees. I'm pretty sure he's crying. I'm pretty sure that he is in tremendous anxiety and agony, knowing everything that's about to take place. Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be shaking at least? I mean, when I get nervous, I kind of get a little jittery. And so at worst, that's, or at best, that's what would be happening. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And that's a key verse for us to look at for this apologetics argument. I'm sure you've heard this. I've mentioned it at least once before how medical uh, experts can look at this and say this fits the description of a case called hematidrosis, which in that case, hematidrosis takes place when somebody is in tremendous anxiety. Does it fit that Jesus is in a place of tremendous anxiety right now, worry? A little bit, obviously not in the way that he tells us not to worry, but you know what I mean. He knows what's coming. He's afraid of what's coming. And so when this takes place, the capillaries under your skin begin to burst, and out of your skin it looks like watered-down blood, like sweat droplets. 
This fits the description. And you know, you know, not only does that look weird, but what it does is it leaves the skin so much more susceptible to wounding. It's more fragile. It hurts more when anybody touches you at the least. And what's going to happen to him here shortly? Come on, it's okay. He's going to be arrested, and he's going to be beat. He's going to be struck. He's going to have a crown placed on his head of thorns, and he's going to be mocked, right? All of this, he's already set up in the garden for the most suffering possible. And that makes sense because that's why he came anyway, right? To take all of our sin, to go through all the agony and all the torment, taking my place. So he's set up for that in the garden, and then he's taken. Matthew, will you go ahead and read Matthew for us? There's more than a few things happening there, isn't there? What's the first thing that was done? Delivered to be crucified, he was scourged, right? What does that mean? What is that? He's just being whipped, right? No big deal. You know, the Jews, they did it 40 minus 1 to show mercy, so he really didn't have it all that bad, did he? Well, who's doing it? Who's doing the scourging? The Romans. So we're not doing a 40 minus 1. Here's how the situation unfolds. And if I was thinking, I would have put pictures at this point. But imagine a stone kind of round like a well without the center cut out. Your hands are tied. You're pulled out over it. You can forget about all the modest pictures that you've seen of Jesus at this point. He's not wearing a thing. And he's pulled out over it where his shoulders, his neck, shoulders, all the way down to below his knees are exposed for this. And you have one Roman right here that's watching him, and you have one Roman that's doing the scourging. And the one job of the one watching him is to make sure he doesn't die, but get as close as possible. And so that's his job. And he gets to that point. Then after that point, when you think about it, if he's whipped that much, do you think he's just kind of got some bruising and a little bit of of skin kind of scratched off? No, no. You're seeing things that you don't want to see or picture, but it's good for us to think about this, right? You're seeing bone, perhaps. You're seeing muscle tore. You might be seeing other things. I don't know. But then what happens? They take him and they put a purple robe on him, right? They're mocking him. They put the crown on his head. His skin's already weak and it's already broken. He's already being beat. He's already bloodied and he's already a mess of a man. And then the blood starts to dry on his back whenever this robe is on him. And then they rip the robe off is what it says, right? Reopening everything. Starting everything over again. Now it's time to go to the cross. The beam is put on your shoulders. And I'm pretty sure it's tied to your hands where if you fall, your face is what's going to catch you because your hands are tied to it. And so who's got John 19, 17? Go ahead. And so we're marching our way there. We've got no energy. I mean, y'all have done things that have wore you out before. But this, it's a whole new level. 
Danny, will you read that last one for us? So after being on the cross for most of the day, your hands being nailed, holes going through them, your feet being nailed, going through them, and y'all know how to breathe, right, on a cross. The only way you can do that is by pulling yourself up. Your back's already ripped open from everything else, and it's rubbing against the cross doing that anyway. And that's the only way you can get a breath. You think he's getting more wore out than the other two? Yes, But just to be sure that he's dead, because, you know, we can't have anybody swooning, can we? Just to be sure he's dead, we're going to speed up the other guys, break their legs where they can't breathe as easy. But him, we're going to send this professional Roman soldier doing this very careful, it's an actual, you know, move that they have. A nine-inch spearhead up under the rib, into the heart, and out. And out came what? And what does that signify? Dead, but had a heart attack. That's where you get the separation from. After he gave up the ghost on his own terms, though, right? Could anybody survive this? No. Could anybody survive the cross, quote, regularly without the prior and the rest? No. What is logical here? Yeah. And so the facts of his death, tremendous anxiety prior to the trial, agony of the scourging, cardiac arrest that was confirmed by the separation of blood and water, the asphyxiation and suffocation from the torture of the cross, the post-mortem wounding of the eight to nine inch spearhead, the expertise of the guards who were experienced with crucifying and killing, they know what a dead body looks like. And the funeral preparations as well by Joseph with the women who were helping and watching on. No person ever has survived this. And so based on all the facts that we can look at history reliably, not including the previous last week whenever we were bringing up the contemporary documentation of others like Serapian and others who talked about how this guy named the Christus was killed, He suffered the ultimate penalty. There's other historical writers besides the Bible that have confirmed he died. Logically, we conclude what? He died. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Could it have been a corpse heist? Well, the facts about the burial that you read in Matthew chapter 27 were that it was this great stone, right, rolled in front of it. But not just rolled in front of it and left. It was sealed in the best way that they knew how. You can see that there. Now, there's, there's some speculation, some argument on what that is. You got a couple different options. Okay, did they seal it, you know, kind of around the edges uh, with some kind of mixture, kind of like concrete in a way? Or, and this is the one that I think, did they put this large leather strap over the front and melt down these metals, essentially welding these spikes into the side, holding the strap, holding the stone? I think that one just because of other things that I've read, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which way it was because it was sealed in the best way they knew. They said, get this thing tight. No one's getting in. They weren't even thinking who's getting out. They were thinking nobody's getting in. We can't allow anybody to come and get the body. And so could the disciples have done it? Well, first of all, was it the wrong tomb? Well, no. Everybody knew where the tomb was because they sent the guards there, didn't they? 
And they sent them to seal it in the best way possible. So the officials knew where the tomb was. Joseph and the women knew where the tomb was. The gardener later knew where the tomb was. There was no question about where it was. It was in record, public record, that everybody knew where it was. Could not have been a wrong tomb. But you know, if, if the disciples came to, to get the body, that makes sense, right? Well, you got the guard stationed there and failure means death. A ragtag team of disciples, you think, are going to come up against these professional killers and win? No, that does not make sense. Well, it was secured in the best way that they knew how with this stone and, and with everything else. And so this corpse heist, well, the disciples of Jesus could not. The Jews would not. If the Jews did get the body, all they had to do later was produce the body and produce what happened to it to stop the spread of Christianity, when you think about it. If, if they were so against it, that would actually be the one thing that they shouldn't do, <laughs> was get rid of the body. But to have it for evidence to say, he's not alive, he's dead, here he is. And so that doesn't make sense logically. Did he swoon? No, we've already established that he had to have died. But you know what? Okay, he swooned and, and he just got out uh, or he was revived, right, in the cool of the grave. He moved the stone. Well, again, it's sealed, right? So that wouldn't do well. But how is a mangled mess of a man going to get up after that and move this one two-ton stone anyway? It's not going to happen. It doesn't make sense. Even if he wasn't fully dead, he wouldn't have worked out for him. And the grave clothes, when you look at it, they're not spread around. They're lying about actually where he was, almost like a cocoon, as you read in John chapter 20. So no, the swoon theory doesn't make sense. But the resurrection of Jesus, yes, that does make sense. Well, they were hallucinating though. That has to be what have happened. Look with me in, in 1 Corinthians 15 real quick. We read this the past two weeks, but I want to start before where we read. I remind you of what we read though was John uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20, where we talked about if Christ is not raised from the dead, you remember all the ramifications of that. If he's not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. We're liars about God. We have no hope. We are not saved. I mean, it's an awful situation if he's not raised. Verse 20, but Christ is raised from the dead. But you look back in verse, oh, look in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared... Okay, here's the appearances. Here's the hallucinators, right? No. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we have everybody in the apostles. We have 500 disciples. We have the women that saw him as well. We have James, his own brother. We have Paul, who was not a believer, but he was a staunch critic. He was a killer of Christians beforehand. And so this idea that... Well, he just hallucinate, hallucinated. When we get to all these eyewitnesses that are historically reliable, and a few other contemporary documents that say that he was seen after his death as well, the idea that he hallucinated really doesn't make sense either because 
The problem with hallucinating, well, let's look at these. You got Mary Magdalene, you got Mary and the other women, you have Peter, you got the two disciples on the road there in Luke, then you got the ten apostles, and I love what happens uh, later when he's with his apostles. They handled them, as you said, but they also, my favorite part, they had a fish fry with them there. They were done fishing, they came in, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it before them. I've heard the joke before, and I've said it before, and I love it, that they knew that it was him because they knew how Jesus ate, and they know Nobody smacks like Jesus when he eats. This was him. They knew it was him. The 11 apostles, then seven of the apostles, then all of the apostles, and then 500 disciples, and James, and then uh, later Paul. The problem with hallucinations, there is no such thing as group hallucinations, this, this mass psychosis or whatever they call it. There is no such thing as group hallucinations, and there were 500 people who saw him at one time verifying that he was alive, verifying that he rose. And you know what else about hallucinations? They don't bring any new information. What was Jesus doing with his apostles? He was reminding them and teaching them up until the point when he was taken up into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He was teaching them and telling them what to do next, such as go to Jerusalem and wait. And so they did. They hadn't heard him say that before, but now they did. And in that way, and Paul, Paul doesn't fit the description of someone who would have hallucinated. Someone who hallucinates is someone who is mentally broken, emotionally destroyed, weak-minded in whatever way, shape, or form. You know, they, they're, they're not all right for whatever reason, short time, or permanent instance in, in the brain. Paul was Pharisee of Pharisees, wasn't he? Paul was a very capable man, physically and mentally. He knew the scriptures. He could go around and do all these things and, and persecute the church. He doesn't fit somebody that loved Jesus prior and then would be broken, right? No, he was celebrating it. He was happy that he was dead. He was denying the resurrection. But then, and so for somebody like Paul, Paul could be a whole class, and, and we'll save that for another time. But Paul in and of himself is a whole uh, argument of how someone like Paul would not and could not change unless he actually saw Jesus. So Paul in and of himself is a fantastic argument for the resurrection. He doesn't fit somebody that would hallucinate, but he fits the perfect description of someone that did actually see the resurrected Savior. And so winding this down, if I can get this to work, Winding this down, as we conclude logically, yes, Jesus did die. We see the evidence. We see the common sense behind it. We see the historical evidence. We see the medical evidence. Jesus was buried, and everybody knows where the tomb was, and the tomb was sealed in the best way possible. It could not have been stolen, and people would not have mistaken it for another tomb somewhere. It was brand new. It was bought on public record, and it was sealed and guarded by Romans where directives and orders, they knew where their men were. And Jesus did, in fact, rise. We see that through the eyewitness testimony. We see that something like this in 1 Corinthians 15 being circulated among. I love how he says there. Did y'all catch it? Because this kind of goes back to our acid test argument from last week. When he said uh, in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. 
So if most of those guys came around and said, this didn't really happen, this would have been tossed out. But they kept it because they said, yeah, I was there. I saw it happen. I know it happened. And so they kept it. The evidence that Jesus did rise is, there is, as we said at the beginning, abundant historical evidence. History, uh, medical, logic, and reasoning points to all of this here. And this is where I'm landing for today before we get into next week's and wait for next week's, but uh, the argument for Revelation. How do we know that the New Testament then is the Word of God? And we'll sum up, bring to your remembrance, uh, and, and it, especially if, if you weren't here for it, the arguments from the argument for existence and design and uh, DNA and Mount St. Helens and all this other stuff that point to, yes, there is a creator, and yes, he is the designer, and yes, he is the God of the Bible, and the Word is his Word. Anything that you guys would like to add, questions, takeaways, comments? Three, four, four. four. And he then started to stink. <laughs> and so he raised him from the dead. Or he proved that a man could be raised from the dead after three days. Right. Not just an instant kind of, you know, they could pass it off as something else, a trick or something. But there was a bunch of Jews saw that. Right. And so I'm glad you said that because that brought up something I wanted to mention again. Hebrews chapter 2, real quick. Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4. What was the point of all the miracles that Jesus did in his life and that the apostles did? Well, here's your answer. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All of the purpose of all the miracles was to point to the fact that what they were saying, what they were hearing, was in fact truth. And so everything that Jesus did in his life was to say, yes, I am from God. I am, literally, I am. And here's the proof. It's in the miracles. But I don't want you to be too caught up in the miracles. I want you to hear what I'm saying. But the chief miracle is what we talked about today. The chief point that the bedrock of Christianity is on is the resurrection. If there's one thing throughout this class that we've had that I hope that you remember and are able to defend and talk about, it would be what we went through today. And I know you all have heard different people talk about it and do it, and so here was my stab at it too. But it is the bedrock on on all of our faith and everything, the reason for everything that we're doing this morning and everything that we live our lives as Christians for. Other thoughts before we end? Right. Nobody had anything to gain from that. 
Right. And so if they wanted, and eventually the Jews and the Romans were annoyed by Christianity, that's putting it lightly, and if they wanted it to stop, either one of them could have stopped it if they could produce the body, but they couldn't. They did not because they could not. All right. Well, I appreciate you guys. And next week, will, like I said, will be the last week in here. And then I'll be with the teenagers in the back in the fellowship hall. And David Bogard will take over here in two weeks and Sunday mornings. Um, Eric, will you uh, close us out with prayer this morning?